0: What I often use as an analogy for network station charter cities, they're like operating systems. So imagine that existing states and governance providers are an MS-DOS operating system. Some of them are even older and they have like hard-coded language in COBOL or something like that. So these places, you can't build high-performance super apps on top of these old operating systems. So what I see Prosper and other charter cities and network states are doing is building a new kind of Apple iOS my thesis is that companies can build better, we can build better super apps on top of these operating systems.
1: Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Salva Dettortoli, and my guest today is Niklas Ansinger. Niklas is founder and general partner at Infinita, the first ever Prospera-based VC fund and the host of the podcast Stranded Technologies. In our conversation, we talk about how new cities and societies can be built in the age of the internet, and we explore the concept of charter cities and network states. Please enjoy this conversation with Niklas and Cyndia. Niklas, welcome to Polyweb.
0: Sarah, it's great to be here.
1: Thank you very much for accepting the invitation. And uh, this is an episode that I'm also super curious about. So I cannot wait literally to ask you all sorts of questions uh, related to the topic of network state and building a new nation. And actually, maybe a good place to start is by giving a definition. So, what is a network state?
0: Sure. So I'm going to follow Balaji Srinivasan's definition. He's the former CTO of Coinbase and the author of the book, The Network State. So he is kind of coining the term and kind of the meme that we're now increasingly seeing in Web3 spaces. So his definition is, in one sentence, a network state is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. Now, that's a short version of the definition. There are longer ones. And there's a lot to say or to unpack about this, but that's what Balaji Sinevas himself says about it.
1: Okay, so maybe we can be more more specific uh, around this definition of uh, what are the elements uh, that, that make... A nation state. So, what are what are the steps that you need to go through, uh, maybe to build one?
0: Well, there's the Balaji version, and there's other versions, right? So, in my version, what do you need to kind of have a new country, nation, city, whatever, or some kind of a political entity with autonomy, semi-autonomy? Is three things or four, if you will. The three things are a laws and regulations, right? So you have a legal code. Second is you have governance services, right? So you're able to issue IDs, passports, and you provide government services, like in some places that might be support, like be a social safety net or public goods and others less so. And the third is land, right? So when you have these three, you can then have people that use it as a platform, right? So a city or a country or a nation, to that view is nothing but kind of a service to you as a customer it's a platform that you can use to live to build a business and to work and to raise a family
1: okay so i got the three elements uh, laws on regulation uh governance uh, services and then last piece land So you gotta have all these elements. Let's start maybe with element number one, right? Laws and regulation. So, how do you reimagine in this case uh, a new type of regulation for a brand new state?
0: How do you imagine a brand new regulation? So I can give a couple of examples, right? Or, Or let's just to put it a bit in context, because what I just said was a bit different from how Balaji and um, Srinivasan's what he says a network state is, right? So, and I can explain a bit the context of that, right? So why do we want to do it in the first place, right? So the idea is, as I said, that existing governance service providers or governments aren't doing the best job all the time, right? So in taxes are often getting more expensive while the services get worse. All of us have experienced waiting lines, healthcare systems, many countries are very bad or education systems and housing seems to get more expensive and not improving seems to be only getting worse. And the theory, the idea is that it's rules and institutions that make the difference, right? So historically, we had places like Hong Kong, like Singapore, like Shenzhen in China or Dubai, which worked with semi-autonomous or special economic zones. And their idea was to upgrade governance in these small places initially to see what works, to experiment, and then roll it out to larger markets. Right. So Hong Kong basically taught China, hey, this is how a common law-based system, how capitalism, private property can work. Let's try that in our country, in Shenzhen. And that was massively successful, so we can roll, roll it out to other places as well. So that's kind of the core, the core idea behind it. But most of these places started through mostly through lucky accidents. Right. So the idea is how can we do more of that? How can we bring the learnings, the best practices from Singapore, from Dubai, from Hong Kong, from Shenzhen, and replicate it in places around the world that that need it. Right. So in, in the developing world in Africa and Latin America, where it's where it's most needed. So that's kind of where the idea of charter cities comes into place. So Romer had its head talk in 2009 that coined the idea of charter cities basically along the lines of what I just said. And since then, you had various movements and various groups, the Charter City Institute and the ZD legislation in Honduras, which is going to be something that we'll talk about a lot and increasing activity and several dozens, maybe hundreds of charter cities around the world many are in Africa right now so the idea is that you get a partnership with the government that gives you the land and then you come and this is where the circle closes with the regulations and the government services and you propose to the country well this is how you kind of manage the zone this is how you're going to do economic development and that model is fine and great right so Prospera, Ciudad Morazan in Honduras are two examples. Talent City in Nigeria and Kwashi in Zambia. These are examples in the United States. You have two projects, de Sack and City of Telosa, even though I'm not that deeply informed of what's going on with those. But that's kind of the idea. This is how you can create kind of a new city or a new nation. Now, this is where Balaji Srinivasan comes in. So he, his background is, is, in, is in crypto, and he's seeing many of the same problems. And um, he's saying, look, there's one problem with this model. And the problem is it's too expensive to do it. So you need to have very deep local connections to get these kinds of agreements with governments. right? So these agreements take often years to get, and very few people in the world have these kinds of connections that are needed to get these deals. So enter the network state, right? So that confuses people a bit because Balaji doesn't talk much about the context that I just said. But he's saying, what if we can do that model upside down, flip that model on its head upside down? So instead of starting with that public-private partnership with the government, with the diplomatic recognition, how about we end with, and then build a community, how about we do it the other way around? We start with that community. We start with a community of like-minded people online. Online is a space where people that kind of have strong beliefs around what he calls a moral innovation. So say you want to have a keto, a healthy living focused community. They can find each other there. And then they build the leverage as a community, right? So they start economic activity. They start helping each other. They build services for the community. So I'm happy to talk about some examples later. But the idea is that you then get leverage. What if you had like 20,000 biohackers in Austin, right? So that can then put leverage on the city council and say, hey, we want these exemptions from these laws because we, I don't know, want to do self-experimentation. So then they have that leverage to get these kinds of agreements, right? So the network state is basically Balaji's attempt to reduce the barriers to entry for more startups to kind of start or to upgrade different ways of governance, right? And now to your question about head regulation and how you started. So again, these are two different models. So in the one model, in the charter city model, you have to start with very comprehensive regulation, right? So you have to you know, come with kind of almost a full stack system. And that's possible. There's ways to do it, right? So these places would use common law based systems. Some of them are templated. There's a legal scholar named Chum W. Bell who has an open source legal system called ULAX. So Prospera and the Catalboa Digital Economic Zone, they're kind of forked off of that regulatory system. There's lots to talk about when it comes to that. Balaji's model would probably be around, uh, would start a bit smaller and would say, let's see what we need to make that moral innovation. So, a moral innovation, again, sort of, we want to have a state where everyone eats keto, where everyone is a vegetarian, or where everyone lives in. There's a van life community, for example. And then look at what kind of regulations or autonomy do we need, right? What's needed and how do we get that? So, these places would probably not yet need full stack legal systems. I mean, think of it to give other examples. Balaji in the book talks often about the state of Israel. Right. So Jews mm-hmm. were living in multiple places around the world and they eventually crowdfund the territory in Israel and built a nation or the Mormons in Utah in Utah. Right. So they were also initially a religious community that had sort of one key or had some moral innovations Then eventually um, were able to get recognition as a U.S. state.
1: OK, makes sense. Uh, and and it's a very fascinating experiment. Uh, I'm curious to know what's what's your take, you know, between uh, a charter city and uh, a network state. Uh, what is your uh, your take based on the experiments that you're seeing right now? And maybe this is a good moment to um, tell us what are perhaps the most successful uh, experiment out there for both, for both charter cities and network states.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, just to preface that it's totally understandable for any listener that's, uh, as of now, a bit confused about the space, right? There's many different things going on, right? And much of this sounds quite out there and many people have probably never thought about that. But again, to take a step back, why is this important so if you think of governments or governance um, as an industry, it would be the biggest industry in the world, right? It would be 30% of global GDP. Would be what's basically government spent. Governments are governance service providers, right? So this is kind of the background. And Charter Cities Networks States, whatever. Their idea is to upgrade governance. What if we could, in, you know, Creates a uh, where places that don't have very good rule of law and upgrade them to something that looks more like a Switzerland, right? So in this way, kind of massively increase the economic development of the country. That's not th- something that's unprecedented. We've seen it in China, for example, that started that way, or Dubai, Shenzhen, and so forth.
1: I don't think that this is so so much out there. I think, to be honest with you, I think that especially in the West, uh, uh, but not only. We kind of lost this um, this this vision uh, of of cities and states, right? Uh, because of the way I think the political system is designed, you know, around uh, elections that are periodical. So every five years you have election, which is great because it prevents tyranny. But at the same time, the downside I think is that most politicians. Uh, just want to get enough done to get reelected for the next mandate, right? And this is counterproductive when you think about a long term vision. And so, like, I think maybe charter states or network states uh, are a way to bring back this uh, we need to have a vision around the city because a city is not unlike a startup or a company.
0: Exactly. I think you're really hitting the nail on the head, right? So I think the one big advantage with democracy is that it has a mechanism to prevent tyranny, right? So it's very hot, not impossible, but very hard for a new dictator to do things that are extremely obviously bad to a majority of the people. Like that's the one thing that democracy is probably somewhat good at preventing compared to dictatorships where that just happens very regularly. That you have a megalomani- megalomaniacal leader <laughs> who just thinks that are very obviously bad to large parts of the population. What democracy is not very good at is uh, is protection of unpopular minorities, and it's also not very good at doing good policies. Right? So politicians don't do good policies; they do policies that sound good. And there's a big difference, right? Politicians care about being reelected, and it's, it's very often that you need expertise to really see that something that sounds good uh, on the face of it, for example, minimum wages or, you know, healthcare regulation, you know, everyone has a right to healthcare. All that sounds, good, that's what politicians say, but when you try to think it through in practice, what does it mean? Very often these things are detrimental to, you know, solutions that actually work in practice. Right, and what you hear from politicians is, you know, that those are the kinds of... So what if you could instead have different incentives, right? Where the politicians... You can think of systems that are sort of in between more like a something, a government run by a corporation, right? That has a board of directors and that has shareholders, right? And these people have some form of vote, they have to vote of exit, right? So if they don't like the service, they go somewhere else to something that's even more democratic, right? So you have more direct democracy where you have like liquid staking or quadratic voting and things like that. So the idea is not to say one model works better than the others. It's like, hey, we now have run the experiment. We have data about what works and what doesn't work with current versions of representative and popular democracy, Let's try out different versions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that the technology that we have right now give us a this unprecedented opportunity to really experiment and and do something new. And I'm curious about how do you go and set up uh, such type of experiments?
0: Maybe I can give a couple of examples. Broadly distinguish between three kinds of. Uh, modes, right So one is sort of the more balaji like approach where the network or the community starts online. I think the two best examples there are Afropolitan and praxis, right So praxis is centered around the value of vitality, right and their goal is to build a new city in the in Europe in the Mediterranean somewhere for their community. and the other one is Afropolitan and they want to fix governance for Africans. Right, so both started on or start online, right? So I'm I'm a member of Afropolitan of Praxis, so I can speak more a bit more about that. And the second category is co living, right? So there are already co living communities like Cabindao, like Kift or here. So these are often sometimes they're based in the United States and have land and they build on that land and they then have sort of Group houses or co-working spaces in other countries, for example, Colombia or Portugal and places like that. And they're kind of connected by having like one community of people who like the van life or of digital nomads that then have access um, and memberships and perks to these different places. And they're often centered around an innovation for how they want to live together, right? Van life, for example, being highly mobile. And then the third one, it's what I'm personally... Mm, most involved in is that actual charter city model, right? So I'm based in what I think is the most advanced modern charter city. It's called Prospera. It's in the country of Honduras. So Honduras is particularly interesting because it adopted what's probably the most or the best legal framework in the world to do charter cities, right? There's another one called Ciudad Morazán. Prosper and Ciudad Morazan have quite different value propositions that are quite interesting to talk about. So Prosper is more for the technology industry, for like very ambitious entrepreneurs. And Ciudad Morazan is more for local blue-collar workers, right? So that, and their value proposition is basic security services and affordable housing. So Honduras is a good example for what's possible if you kind of have or find the right development model and the right legal framework within a country. And in the Honduran case, and that's similar to probably to other cases, you have to come as a private or public city developer, right? You can also be part of an NGO or an international organization, I suppose, but you can do it as a private organization. So Prospera is literally a Delaware C Corp, right? And the Delaware Ellis, right? So the C Corp owns the IP and the more software-like stack of governance services and the online platform. You can imagine a bit like Estonia, right? So Prosper actually has Otvata, who was building the Estonia e-governance platforms, also building it for Prospera. So that's part of the Delaware venture-funded company of Prospera. Then there's a Delaware LLC that functions as a holding of real estate, right? And the third entity then is Prospera ZA, Which is in, which is basically the entity that has authority over the semi autonomous zone. And that's been granted by the Honduran government, right? So that's what that legal framework does. So you can come as Prosper with these two entities and then do an application process that in their case took a couple of years. So it's not an easy feat, sort of going back to Balaji's point of making that easier and reducing the barriers to entry. But they have that. Now they're an approved entity by the government that has authority uh, over the zone with the legal status that it has right now, right? So it's limited. It's under Honduran sovereignty and Honduran criminal law and immigration law applies. But other than that, Prosper and Morazan have the autonomy to do their own labor laws, their own business registry, their own business regulations, their own tax system. Right so that's a lot of autonomy and freedom to well try different things that's why I'm so excited about it
1: How did you get to participate in this project so early on like both in you mentioned you're you're contributing to Afropolitan you mentioned right now you currently we are recording and uh, you are in Honduras at the moment so how did you get personally involved uh, in these projects? And maybe you can, for listeners that would like to get involved, you can give a few suggestions along the way.
0: Yeah, sure. So my background is both, I spend a lot of time in, in academia and I like to read a lot. I like to write about a lot. I, my background is in philosophy and economics and in public policy. So I was always thinking about these questions. I was from very early on always very frustrated that there doesn't seem to be much happening when it comes to politics and policy and you can't really improve things the way I want to, right? You can't really test out new things. And then the second half after I was 26, I learned sort of the toolkit of entrepreneurship, right? So I was working for a startup. I started a startup within the startup. It's now its own startup. So I learned the tools of how to start small and scale fast. Right, and basically, what I'm doing now is putting these two together. Right, so I was thinking two and a half years ago, what is kind of the big dent that I want to make in the universe, like the most ambitious possible project or company that I would create that I could think of, and then started looking around, and I spent a lot of time, six months, to research healthcare. Right, so the startups I did before were in analytics, sort of a lot of AI and machine learning. And I was thinking, what if we could apply what I learned in healthcare? What if we could make the system vastly more efficient? And my idea is, could we create sort of a GitHub-like open source platform for medical data? So, right, so it was just the start of COVID. What if researchers around the world could work simultaneously on solutions that would help us prevent future pandemics and more quickly react to public health emergencies and find solutions? Right, so the big problem with that is that I learned is the system of drug approvals, right? So the FDA uh, clinical trial system plus the patent system and IP system. And plus to some degree, also the subsidization of healthcare. These are major obstacles to building kind of a more rational and better healthcare system, right? So if you're starting, you know, even if my solution would have succeeded, we'd be still looking at for any new drug or treatment to go through testing for more than 10 years and costs of hundreds of millions, right? So and that mechanism is systematically creating a bottleneck. We know very well that it's ethically and anti- ethically bad and morally inefficient. I say ethically bad. So when you watch the movie Dallas Bias Club, right? So these this was about people in the 1980s that were diagnosed with AIDS right? So there was an AIDS epidemic. So there were drugs available in France, in Israel, in Germany, in Japan, but the FDA said, oh, you're not allowed to take it here. And that just makes the moral situation kind of present, right? So if you tell someone, I'm not allowing you to, well, take risks for your life, right? So you don't, you're taking ownership of someone's Decisions of their own body, right? We have a strong principle about bodily autonomy and informed consent and things like that, right? So ethically, I think that's quite impermissible. There should be, it's just just not right. So that just means you're responsible for withholding often life-saving drugs from people. Sometimes you're also withholding drugs that are not good for people, but that's where it comes to the economic. part. So it's economically very inefficient. The incentive you create for any FDA official is to be hyper-conservative, right? So Balaji Srinivasan talks a lot about that. We know that for more than 50 years, so in economics we have something that's called public choice theory. It's just that the ones that are in power or are responsible have no incentive to listening and to changing anything, right? So that goes back to we can't change bad policies that are once in place. There is no such things as sunset clauses. And, you know, you're creating a group of entrenched special interests that have economic incentives to maintain the status quo. And no doesn't even need to be any bad actor or malice involved, right? It's really just the incentive system that we create. And then I was thinking, what are other industries? You know, health, uh, healthcare, what else is there? So education, finance, housing and real estate or energy, when you look closer, there's always a similar situation, right? So there is a set of regulations that have once been passed a couple of decades ago, typically typically after a very high-profile public incident, right? So a good example is nuclear power and the regulations afterwards that supported its development. And a good example is 9-11, so airline safety regulations that are, you know, not that much necessary anymore and infringing on your personal freedom in many ways or you know patriot acts and sort of the ability of spy agencies these were the result of nine eleven. so these regulations were written often in haste after highly visible public incidents and then they are irreversible and the development of many industries is held back by these often irreversible legislations why does california suffer from a housing crisis that's completely artificial, right? That has to do that is because the cost of compliance and of regulation to build new housing is so high that it doesn't economically make sense to build small housing, to build smaller mobile housing that is very cheap and affordable, because the costs for that are prohibitive, right? And you can go through each of these areas and you can have a similar debate, right? So, and that's what I call kind of the base layer of society. The way we make rules, the way we make regulations is kind of the fact. We know what could improve it. We know that sunset clauses, a more common law-based system and regulatory flexibility and sort of developing a competitive insurance market to assess regulatory risk. These are all things that we've thought long and hard about that seem very likely to work. And some of them we also have seen. work. So we know that the housing regulations are better in Tokyo or in Houston, Texas. So we have, we have some of the real world data, but we're not able yet to put it together, right? Sort of to run more experiments where we can take sort of the best practices and new ideas and kind of try them out in a new space, All right? So this is... Something that stuck with me, sort of that idea space, and that's when I read about Prospera, right? So it was an article by Scott Alexander, Astrocodex then. It's called Prospectus and Prospera. It was a very in-depth article about Prospera. It's a long read; like you have to read at least half an hour, maybe even an hour. I read it more than twenty times almost. It's extremely well researched. It's extremely accurate. Right. So I'm, I was just, impre- I was just really, really impressed. And I was like, wow, this is it. This is, this already exists and this could work. So, but it also sounds too good to be true. So I've got to check this out and see it with my own eyes. Like, is this a scam? Who are the people behind it? What is their vision? What is their ethics? And that's when I visited last year in April, organized the first independent conference in Prospera, the Build Prospera Summit. And I was just, really amazed by the community behind it. So it's very locally grown. There's many Hondurans that are involved, local Hondurans that work in the service industry, educated Hondurans lawyers from the mainland who to whom it's an alternative to going to the United States in search for opportunity, together with an international team like the two founders of Prospera from Guatemala, Venezuela. The president is American. that's sort of have thought long and hard about how to build the right uh, or better regulatory system that could kind of radically upgrade governance and unleash entrepreneurship in Honduras, in a country that has a lot of crime and a lot of corruption and where it's very hard to do business. So that's a vision that I'm very aligned with. And I was very convinced by the team and I just love the community here, which is why I'm now in San Pedro Sula, because most people, most of the Hondurans that work for in Prospera are from Saber Sula. Right. Most are from one university. There's always these clustering effects. There's also many entrepreneurs in Honduras that don't yet live in Prospera but are curious. So I wanted to celebrate my birthday with these friends and with other Honduran entrepreneurs. And you know, to also send a message that we that I'm here to to help build that ecosystem. Right. So I'm planning to make the first ever VC investment in a Honduran company within the next two or two to four weeks, actually.
1: Wow! How is Prospera different, uh, for example, than an average city, or not even average, like like uh, I don't know, Austin or or New York or San Francisco or like London, Berlin? How is it different?
0: Well, imagine it would be any of these places on on day one or day two, right? These places also started small, right? So Prosper doesn't get that big, right? So that's the big difference um, between Prosper and many other places, right? So that's also, I'm more of a city person. I love bigger cities, right? I love Berlin. I love Austin. I love Mexico City. I would say these are my three favorite cities in the world. So that's the one thing that doesn't have and that I miss. What it does have or almost anything else about it is absolutely amazing, right? So Prosper is on an island, the island is called the Rodan. So Rotan has about the size of Hong Kong in land, but it's very sparsely populated. So there's about seventy to hundred thousand people that live on Rota. The biggest industry there is tourism. So it's a popular tourist destination. It has paradise coral reef, crystal clear blue water, and beaches. It's just it's just amazing. It has a solid infrastructure. It has hospitals. It has roads and uh, it has American-style grocery shops and supermarkets. So it is a very decent infrastructure already on the island. Prospera owns territory, but right? So it has one central location, and then it owns land in several parts of the island, and even on the mainland in Honduras that's connected to a port. So Prospera is right now also building their own port. That's central territory, and Prospera is about a 15-minute ride from the international airport in Rotan. So Rotan has is an international airport with direct flights from Miami, from Dallas, Houston, and a couple of other places. And that's continuous territory has about the size of Monaco. So if you were densely populated, you could fit about 40,000 people in there. Right now, there's about 50 to 100 people there that go in and out, partly live in that territory and partly live in other parts of the island. 1,000 jobs that are tied to Prospera. So people that work remotely or work as service workers but live somewhere else on the island. There's 130 registered businesses. And Prospera itself, is the the continuous territory is basically divided into two. So one is a greenfield cell. So that was land that was previously unused. And right now, kind of jungly, but they now have a co-working space there and several construction projects. One is called the Circular Factory. That's a startup that's doing construction technology. So they're going to use robotic arms and 3D printing to produce local building materials. So they're kind of upgrading local labor, local workers, and using local materials, timber, to use in the construction process. Another construction pro- project is the Dunor Tower. So the Dunar Tower will have 85 apartments, and it will be a really nice condo. My wife and I are buying an apartment, and I'm going to move into there. And then the other part of it, the continuous territory is called Pristine Bay. So Prospera bought Pristine Bay ready-made. Pristine Bay is a golf resort, right? So it's more higher end, it's more luxurious. It has five-star restaurants, hotels, resorts. And now Prospera is it has it as part of their jurisdiction. So now you see things popping up like a Montessori school, a Bitcoin education center. A crypto-friendly scuba shop with a big Bitcoin logo. And they're also planning to build uh, the mini-circle clinic there right now, which is a biotech startup. It's doing clinical trials on the island. So that's what gives you about a gist. So I'm organizing six conferences there this year. And together with the Doona Towers and two other cons- residential construction projects that are going on, we could, in the best case, have about 300 to 500 people living there physically. So, but even right now, there is already a social life, right? So I have many friends there, we cook together, we go to restaurants, we go have fun or go out uh, to a bar on the other side of the island. So there is an active social life already going on.
1: So for people who are interested in joining, let's say, Prospera, right? So are there entry requirements and uh even more, what are the, the benefits of joining uh, a city like Prospera?
0: So, so Prospera can't issue passports. You can have residency. And There's different tiers, so you can have e-residency, and that entices you to visit. Although you can visit without it if you sign like a like a like a social contract, almost like a mm-hmm. agreement of coexistence, and that costs uh, about 130 costs 130 dollars a year. You can upgrade that to full residency. I'm planning to do that. So e residency is super easy. You can just sign up like on any software platform. Full residency is a bit harder because you also need to get Honduran residence. That's a process that takes three to six months and costs a bit of money, not crazy expensive. But once you have that, you can get full Prospera residency, which entices you to or allows you to put your tax numbers out there. So you have very low income taxes and no capital gains taxes in Prospera. So that's what I'm planning to do. That's the big advantage of that. And the third thing is you can buy real estate and own land when you're a new resident. And you can form companies. So you can form an LLC in Prospera and that has certain advantages and more flexibilities, right? So I was just thinking the other day, the three types of people that I think would benefit most from Prospera or benefiting most or are most involved are three. Uh, One is locals, right? So for local service workers that can earn more money there and higher wages and have stable jobs, right? The second one is, is entrepreneurs, right? So entrepreneurs from Honduras, from the mainland, but also international entrepreneurs. So Prospera has the best environment in the world to do certain kinds of business. That's also where my VC comes in. I see Prospera as having the best regulatory system when it comes to biotech and healthcare, Hard, certain areas in hardware, and certain areas in digital assets and finance. Right. So for example, if you want to start an insurance company or a bank, that's just much, much easier in Prospera. If you want to do a crypto startup, there's just a much clearer set of regulations that you can follow. If you want to have a regulatory sandbox for certain things you want to experiment under the real world. For example, you have a, we have a drone company there. So drones are a very he- heavily regulated space. Um, in Prospera, they can start drone flights out of sight, which they can't do anywhere else. So that's the type. And then the third type is, well, if you want to invest, right? So if you want to help build that and grow that ecosystem, if you want to invest in real estate and fund young entrepreneurs, I think these are the three use cases. Right, so that's very different. It's not a tax haven, right? So or an offshore jurisdiction. That's not at all the intention, right? So the most important thing that Prosper is working on is creating employment and creating a better business environment for people. Right, so the advantage is much more on the. I think the deeper you can get involved, including physically, the more advantages it has for you. If you feel you belong to any of these three brackets that I mentioned but there's much better options if you want to save on taxes or anything like that.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's more like, yeah, a new way perhaps of reimagining collaboration and society with the internet, you know, in the era of, of the internet. Because if you think about it, I keep drawing the parallel between states and uh, an organization, but all organizations, companies uh, for organizations I mean companies, sorry, but all companies that predate the internet are now going this uh, undergoing this process of having to reimagine themselves in the era of the internet. This happens to banks, this happens to you know big multinational companies uh, that do physical products. Uh, from Coca Cola to Nike. Um, and the states are the same. You know, they are organizations that predates the internet by, by centuries. And now they kind of struggle to keep up with, with what's happening. It's like they are being attacked, attacked um, on multiple sides, right? You have new ways of uh, uh, co- conceptualizing money know with bitcoin etc now we are seeing that they are starting to experiment with cbdc uh, central banks digital currencies uh, so it's kind of uh, like like in everything you know things have a start they have a high point and then they start to decline and i feel like uh, we're kind of that point for uh, the sovereign states as we know them right now. And I, from talking with you, I wonder if other ways to interact uh, with society and organized societies are possible. And sometimes I wonder if it's not a problem of size. So the big states as we envisioned or as we are used to right now, maybe they are not efficient anymore. Maybe they are not anymore the right way in which we organize ourselves. Maybe we need something that it's more, that it's global, but still local enough to make us feel connected.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what I keep saying to people is that there's not only decentralization, right? So there is both advantages to decentralization and to centralization. And the advantage of having bigger cities is network effects, right? So there's more people around you that you can interact with. There's a higher diversity and variety of cultural production and goods, right? So you might have more of your friends there, might more people there physically that are alike with you. But as you correctly pointed out, with the internet, we can have more of these things decentrally. With crypto, we're decentralizing one key industry, money and finance, and to some degree also legal. Right, so that's I think one of the big changes that with sort of the blockchain powered digital assets, and also increasingly realizing that law and legal we can put on smart contracts and partly codify, and it's less and less tied to like physical territory jurisdiction. Right? It's the law of the internet. You're in-, in the internet, you're interacting with other people, right? So you are you know making transactions, you're buying and selling things, you're sharing ownership over certain things, you're voting on things, you can all do all of that online. But you're not separated by the physical space, right? But the old school model is that you have one physical jurisdiction where the law applies, right? So, blockchain and the internet is kind of decentralizing human relationships and thereby also governance, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And You know, I'm very excited about these experiments going on uh, because I feel that the model of of states that we are are experiencing right now, it's not rising to the challenges that that we are facing right now. They don't know how to react anymore. And one shift challenges that I can think of is climate change, uh, for example, where you clearly see that you know, there is the short term uh, um, gain of economic growth, etc. And then there is the long term consequences of not doing anything to stop what is happening uh, to the planet. But, you know, since it does not go over the five year horizon of the re-election <laughs> process, then maybe it's someone else's problem. Maybe it's the next uh, government problem, not not no, not of the current administration. So that's why I'm so excited to see this kind of experiment, and maybe to to appro- We're approaching the the end of the of the interview, but there is one more question that I want to want to ask you because you're also a general partner at a VC that is called Infinita, and. My understanding is that Infinita invests in, you know, this type of projects in this new concept of of nations and city and reimagine kind of the way that we interact as a society. So as a VC, what are the elements that you look at to evaluate a potential investment?
0: Yeah, sure. Just to again set the context. So for me, I what I often read, right, so the tables takes are investing in entrepreneurs with a larger than life mission, right? That are extremely driven and ambitious and relentless. It was also very impossible. A very important that space is a very sound ethical compass, right? Because many of these things that we do are in the mainstream, you know, considered controversial, right? So I had in my podcast in episode thirty seven, I had someone to your topic of climate change, who's doing solar geoengineering. So, you're selling sulfur dioxide particles into the atmosphere that directly reflect the sunlight to cool the planet. That's very controversial. Right. So, the people that I, so that's something that I'm, you know, very keen on. All right. I really, really want to deeply understand what's their their ethical and moral compass and what's their vision. Beyond sort of these table stakes concepts that I really like or that I'm very keen on looking at deeply is what I call customer hyperfluency, right? So I think that's how you know whether someone has really or is on the way of mastering their discipline. It's this concept of hyperfluency. So when they explain it to you, it's very clear that they thought it through enough to a degree that they can explain it to you in clear and simple terms in a way that you understand, even though you don't have much background. And you kind of go back and forth and change some of the inputs, some of the premises, and they're immediately able to context switch. And you can clearly see that they have tons of data points that they can they have to show you that it can work this way or not the other way, right? So it, most of it is around what customers want, right? The value they create for customers, and not the technology, right? So the technology is kind of a means to an end to do create value for customers. So that's why I call it customer hyperfluency and that technological hyperfluency, right? So there's a lot of technological hyperfluency around, I don't know, nuclear or nanotechnology or or, or whatever it is, but it has to be really centered around the value it creates for the customer.
1: Anything uh, that you have seen recently that really excites you, that you think this is going to be the next thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've heard about several yet undisclosed projects for new charter cities in the Caribbean and in Africa, and some of which I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be so amazing. There's one in Tanzania, uh, another one in Nigeria, there's potentially another one in Zambia. I see Vitalik Buterin sort of getting increasingly attracted to that space, and he's meeting with government officials in Africa, he's meeting with other network state and charter city leaders in Africa. And he's also organizing this network state, two-month-long network state experiment in Montenegro that I'm going to. So I don't get what his plan, know yet what his plans or visions are, but it seems that there's increasingly a bigger, it it attracts more smart people into the space, right? Vitaly Pouturin brings extremely smart and thoughtful people from the Web3 space to sort of pay attention to this. Same as Balaji Srinivasan, right? So they're interested in Ethereum development and longevity and biohacking and public goods funding. So I was at East Denver last week and, you know, many people there have heard or read the network states. I had speaking time and had more than 100 people come. So I'm increasingly seeing that the space is getting mimified specifically because of Balaji's book. And I think this is going to attract more talent to come into the space and more capital. And this is going to you know, bring more startups to the starting line that either start with sort of the online community, Balaji model, um, but also I le- have heard of several really, really cool projects that can start with a charter city model and get free zone status in some countries with significant legal autonomy. So it's going to be, so this is really the year for this <laughs> and the best time to get involved.
1: Nicholas, thank you so much for sharing your your experience and your thoughts with us. And it was a pleasure Fantastic. having you on the show. It
0: was my absolute pleasure. I um, hope your listeners will enjoy this and they can find me at infinitavc.com or on Twitter. My hashtag is Niklas with a K, Ansinger, A-N-Z.
1: Yeah, we'll leave uh, all your contacts and a few of the resources that you mentioned in the show notes in the description. And with that, I will see you all next week. Bye.
0: Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Bye.
1: That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review or a comment as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.